I was watching a Q&A session, a question and answer session at a big church in California, a non-Pentecostal church, but a decent church still. And it was a Q&A session with their pastor, and some lady uh, walked up to the microphone to ask a question, and her question was about living for God. And the question that she asked in this Q&A session had, had something to do with how can I believe that God is pleased with my life if I keep on failing Him? And at the end of her question, you could tell that she had uh, begun, began to tear up, that she herself was very sad at the reality of her own failures in her life. And it's a conviction that many Christians can relate to. How, how is God supposed to be pleased with me when it seems like all I do is fail God? To which this pastor responded, um, he asked her, are you living for God? And to which she said, I'm trying, but I can't do it in my own strength. To which the pastor wisely responded, yes, welcome to the club. Because nobody can live for God in their own strength. God demands a lifestyle of sinless perfection. That's a bar that at least we here don't believe anybody has ever met, save for Christ himself. So, when it comes to the fact that in our sin, we are dominated by the sin nature, which the Mosaic Law makes a clear reality... Because of this, you and I would literally need supernatural assistance to even have a chance to live for God. And we've been talking about it, or we've been talking about it, I've been preaching about it for the past few weeks, how the Mosaic Law, its purpose in the life, or just the law of God, I'm not even going to label it the Mosaic Law, just the law, the law for you and I today, its purpose in our lives is to identify sin. That's what it does. It identifies sin. It shows us what's wrong with us. That's what the law does. The, the law identifies sin. And this leads to what we've read to be titled the curse of the law. If you and I die in the sin that the law of God points out in us, we go into eternal damnation. We go to hell for eternity. And that is the curse of the law. It is the punishment for those who have truly uh, truly tried to be a good boy or a good girl all their way to heaven. And at the end of it all, they are stuck with paying the wages of sin themselves, which is a wage that they'll never be able to fully pay in and of themselves. And this wage of sin is eternal death. This wage of sin is eternal destruction. And the Mosaic Law identifies sin. It identifies what we call the curse of the law. You could call this law the law of sin and death. The Mosaic Law of the Old Covenant says that I'm a sinner doomed for eternal life. Or, I'm sorry, I'm a sinner doomed for eternal death. I'm a sinner doomed for damnation. But... Paul would write to the church of Rome in Romans 8, verses 1 and 2. He would have these words to say. He would say, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. And Brother John Ford makes it clear just about every chance he gets when it comes to that phrase, made free. 
not simply set free, but you and I are made, created in it, to an entirely new creation in the eyes of God because we are no longer under the dominion of the sin nature, but in the eyes of God we are under the lordship of his son, Jesus Christ. We have been made free from that law of sin and death. The 17th century preacher and writer John Bunyan would write this. He said, to run and walk, to run and work, the law demands, but neither gives us feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. The gospel makes it possible to live for God. I can live out this walk with God, meaning that I not only just have to talk about Christianity, but I can actually be a Christian by the grace of God. And Paul continues writing to the Romans in verses 3 and 4, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. The law tells you and I that we are sinners but Christ can save us from our sins. It's like going to a doctor's office almost. The law gives the diagnosis. Christ gives the cure. So, given this Galatians material that Paul is writing in the New Testament, we can infer that Paul has been preaching this equipping gospel for at least over a decade Many scholars believe that the books of Galatians and Romans are at least a decade apart from one another. And if that's the case, Paul is very, very acquainted with this message that he preaches. He knows what he's talking about. Now, Galatians and Romans, some believe that these books are ten years apart. So Paul knows whenever he says to these Galatians, whenever he preaches the gospel to these Galatians, he knows what he's talking about. And now I'm going to invite you all to turn back, turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. By this point in the book of Galatians, Paul has made it a serious effort to bring the gospel back to a group of Gentiles, non-Jewish people, who have left the gospel in exchange for legalism. A group of Judaizers, men of the Judaistic faith, have influenced this church and have begun to tell these people that righteousness with God can be obtained by the keeping of the law. And so far, Paul has begun to defend the gospel, mainly with his own personal testimony of the gospel's effectiveness. And he has simply begun to reteach to these Galatians what the gospel actually is. And in Galatians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, Paul writing, it says this, and y'all can stand now. He says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all, but, un- but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, 
to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Howbeit then, when you know not God, when you knew not God, past tense, you did service unto them which by nature are no gods. But now, after that you have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn you again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto you desire again to be in bondage. You observe days and months and times and years. I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. And by the grace of God, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I'd like to preach to y'all a message tonight entitled, A Desire for Bondage. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to gather here corporately, Lord. We thank you for all that you've done for us in our lives. God, we ask that you help me tonight, say what you have me say, and say it properly. I ask that you anoint all of us to receive from your word what you have us receive. Lord, we ask that we be edified this day by our daily bread, your living word, God. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us, and we give you all the praise and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Galatians are a perfect example of what not to do with the gospel. These are people that Paul has invested time in. He has ministered to them. He has planted churches with them. Paul has gotten to know these Galatians. He's gotten to know these Gentiles. The Apostle Paul has been known as the Apostle to the Gentiles. And the reason for that is because it was Paul who would be more influential in taking the gospel to the non-Jewish world than really anyone else. If nothing else, at least laying the foundation for the gospel being in the Gentile world. It was popular Jewish thinking at this time that really only Jews truly deserved uh, all of this access to the gospel and its great blessings. And really, this would carry a negative effect on many Gentile Christians because as Paul would write in the next epistle, Ephesians, writing to another group of Gentiles who are blessed beyond measure in Christ, but they live as though they are poor spiritually because they don't know what they have in Christ. They don't know what all they have access to spiritually, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They don't know that a new name has been written down in heaven. They don't know that they have a new name. There's a lot they don't know. They're just kind of saved. And this popular line of thinking among the Jewish culture, mainly the Jewish religious leaders, would really put a stop. I don't want to say put a stop, but it would be a great hindrance to the gospel's revelation to the world. And, Paul, and God would use men like Paul greatly. Paul specifically, who would receive what we call today the revelation of the new covenant to preach the gospel to the non-Jews and 
We thank God for this ministry because in one way or another, this ministry has affected you and I. Uh, the Apostle Paul, this Jewish evangelist, has been considered by many American preachers, many African preachers, Asian preachers, European preachers, and rightfully so as basically their hero of the faith. Because really before anyone else, the Lord would use this man to bring the gospel to the Gentile world, a world that many Jews did not want to go out into because of their religious pride. But God used one man to bring Jesus Christ to the world in some way, shape, or form. Paul would not get to go all over the world, but the Holy Spirit. Uh, we read what Paul wrote to one church in this book. The Holy Spirit ministers through the Apostle Paul's epistles, his letters, his books, to so many of us Gentiles today. And it's a blessing to be reading about this man. And Paul, in this little section of scripture, is opening up a little uh, bit of a personal uh, thought to these Gentiles. Because he has invested his time and his resources. He has invested much spiritually into the Galatians, and now he's received word that that gospel that he preached and taught to them so much that they've abandoned that just to go back under the law. And if anybody knows anything about the law in this situation, it's the Apostle Paul, the man who used to be a devout Judaizer, a devout Pharisee, the man who was so devout in the law of Moses that he killed as many Christians as he could get his hands on, but the Lord changed him. Now, first of all, before we go any further into that line of thinking, let's go through these first few verses in Galatians 4. Paul uses that word heir, H-E-I-R, and according to the Oxford Dictionary, an heir is a person legally entitled to the property or rank of another on that person's death. And I don't want to dig too deep into that definition, but it is true that because of the death of Christ, you and I have a great inheritance in the eyes of God and in heavenly places because of what he's done for us. Christ has earned an inheritance for us. We didn't earn it. Christ provided that inheritance for us. He goes on to say that heirs, according to the promise, this promise is Abraham's promise. And as we've been learning, that promise is the revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know that Abraham personally received this promise from God. First of all, that he would be the father of a great nation, speaking of Israel, and that the nations of the world would be touched or moved or blessed through him. And that ultimately speaks of the gospel. That ultimately speaks of Jesus Christ and what he would do for us at Calvary. That's the promise of Abraham. And all those who embrace the gospel, all those who repent of their sins and run to Christ with that great saving knowledge. As Paul is writing, we are heirs of that promise because we have embraced the gospel. That promise has been fully revealed fully exposed, and we can have access to all that that promise entails right now. So, for these first seven verses, Paul is expounding on an analogy of a child's coming of age, contrasting this with believers' lives 
before salvation as Christian, as I'm sorry, as children and servants with their lives after salvation, which would be as uh, adults and sons. In both Paul's Jewish and Gentile audiences, he would have these both both of these audiences would have understood this imagery since the Jews, the Greeks, and the Romans all had a ceremony, some of which are still held to this day, a ceremony that would mark a child's coming of age, their passage into adulthood. In verse one he uses that verb that, that word child. And the word child in the Greek refers not just to any uh, preteen, any generic, I'd say generic, seven-year-old. It doesn't refer to just any child as we would know a child today, but it refers to a small baby who is so immature, who can barely know how to speak. It refers to a young baby, someone who is too young to talk, someone who is too intellectually and spiritually immature. This is somebody that is not ready for the privilege and responsibilities of adulthood. So that's what he means when he says child. And spiritually, that is who we are before we come to know Jesus Christ. But we'll get more into that here in just a second. In verse number two, Paul uses that phrase tutors and governors, which could also be translated into guardians and managers. Now... The last time I preached from Galatians, I talked about Paul talking about a schoolmaster that we were under before we knew Christ, and that schoolmaster ultimately referring to the law, and we learned that another word that could be used for schoolmaster is guardian, guardian which would be referring to the schoolmaster, which all of that would be referring to the law, and ultimately for us spiritually, this, these guardians, these governors, all of that refers to the law. Not knowing Christ, all we have in this world spiritually is knowing where we have fallen short of the glory of God. We don't have a lot. We don't have redemption. We don't have forgiveness. But we just have the knowledge. We have the reason to run to a Redeemer in the law. Because the law shows us that we need an intercessor between us and the Father. Yes. Now, tutors and guardians back in this time were slaves entrusted with the care of underage boys and governors or managers would manage the property for them until they came of age. Along with the schoolmaster, these two, the schoolmaster and the governor, had almost total control of the child's life. And it's for this reason why the child in practice would have been very synonymous with the slave back in this time, which uh, I won't get into that, but these two had almost entire control over the child's life. That's just how things worked back in the day. And Paul is going into all of this because he wants us to know he's applying all of this spiritually. And before our spiritual coming of age, when we came to saving faith in Christ, we were under, as he describes, the elements of the world. Now that word elements, that word elements in verse 3, in the original Greek, elements is elements. It means what you think elements would mean, uh, basic parts, rudiments, components. Back in this time, the ancient Greek philosophers would make this big deal about how 
the planet Earth uh, consisted of the four basic elements, Earth, water, wind, and fire. And Paul, we have to understand, is intending a spiritual message here. It's not a physical thing. When he says elements, he's not talking about earth, water, wind, and fire. He's talking about something more spiritual. He's talking about the basics. He's talking about the simple components. And what he would really be talking about is, as he would discuss, that bondage, which would have been under the sinful ways of this sinful world, an aspect of the law makes light of. But when everything was exactly the way God needed it to be, he sent his only begotten son, born a human being. And Jesus Christ would, as I've already said, totally fulfill the law. He would then go to Calvary's cross to totally satisfy God's wrath, which means that everything that you and I ever needed to be done on our behalf, Jesus has already done it. Now, everything that you and I need is done on our behalf. Jesus has done it all. We have been, by definition, spiritually matured in the eyes of God. The salvation experience is that maturing that Paul is talking about. Now, we progressively mature as Christians. Progressively, we are from, as the Bible describes it, going from glory to glory. We are being progressively sanctified. We are being progressively conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Our minds are being progressively renewed as well. One day at a time, that's walking with God. Just one day at a time. Always being conformed further into what pleases God, which is Jesus Christ. What He thinks like, His attributes, His characteristics, His heart for humanity. Now... We've been matured in the eyes of God. So as I've already said, the Galatians are a pure example of what not to do with the gospel. Whenever you don't understand the gospel properly, that could lead to a few bad things for your church. The Lord could appoint, could intend, I dare say, appoint somebody to ministry. The Lord could gift somebody with ministry but because of the flesh, because of how you see yourself, you might see yourself unworthy of ministry and you keep insisting that somebody else do what the Lord is calling you to do. Not only is that displeasing to God, but you'll be harming the church that God has called you to at the same time. And these people that that keep just receiving this burden that should be your responsibility, they're not going to accomplish what God wants you to accomplish. And you can't do any of this properly if you don't even understand the gospel. You don't know how to live for God if you don't understand how God saves. You don't know anything about living for God. And the Galatians, in going back to the law, are just going back to the sinful lives that the law had already exposed. And it's not honoring God. It's not wise. It's not being spirit-sensitive. It is literally disobeying God. That's all there is to it. There is no argument. If you use the right semantics, of course, 
Of course, you use whatever excuse you want to, but at the end of the day, all you're doing is rebelling against the will of God. Now, when it comes to the will of God, I know for sure that there are two things, because if life were so simple for me to just put my fingernail on your forehead and tell you your great future, like all these fortune tellers in the churches are acting out like that's the gift of prophecy. Friend, don't you know that I would be my first candidate? Don't you know if life were so simple that I would just slap my palm on your head and give you all the strength and anointing that you need? Don't you know that I, before I would go to bed every night, I would just be lying on the bed doing this? I'd probably pass out due to dizziness because of how often I'd be hitting myself. But that's not how it is. You have to be patient. You have to expect God. And you have to rely on Him. Don't give other people something that God wants you to be doing. That's how you dishonor the Lord. And I don't see how the Lord will honor that disobedience. So while salvation is the free gift of God, it brings with it a serious responsibility. God requires believers to live a holy life because they are children of a holy God. And God has also required His people to worship Him. Now these obligations do not include the rituals and ceremonies that were unique to Israel under the Mosaic Law, as the Judaizers were falsely claiming. And in verse 11, Paul feared that his efforts in establishing the Galatian church might be in vain if they fell back into legalism. We need to remember about the Apostle Paul, this man is not a superhero. The modern church would rather you believe that a prophet an apostle, a whoever, an evangelist. They are basically super Christians. And if you need healing, just go to the prophet. If you need confirmation of your call, just go to the apostle. You know, nobody preaches quite like an evangelist, stuff like that. You know, these people are not better than anyone else. And I don't say this in spite of anybody. People that I know who are not prophets, who are not evangelists, who are not apostles... I've heard say more than once that these are just the ideal preachers. These are the ideal Christians, and that's not true. That's not true. Paul is not a superhero. He is a man. And just like you and I would, if we put so much time and effort into a church, only to learn that this church readily forsakes the gospel quickly, the moment that an outside source came into their ranks to tell them the false doctrine, to learn how ready they were to accept this false doctrine. We'd probably be a little sad. We'd probably be a little grieved. Paul is curious. The great Apostle Paul. This man is the greatest evangelist who's ever lived. And he's concerned that his efforts to evangelize have been in vain. How low does a church have to be for one of the godliest men who has ever lived to confess this to them? You have to be pretty low. When I was in Bible college, I knew, uh, I didn't know personally, and I've already talked about this, people who were exposed to, as it was worded there, and rightfully so, the message of the cross, the foundation on Christ and Him crucified, in Christ and Him crucified alone. If you need salvation, it's in Christ and Him crucified. If you want to live for God properly, 
you're going to find that where you got saved. The strength of Christ and Him crucified. Everything that's afforded to us through that. People who sat in the same classrooms that I sat in. People who slept on the same dorm floor that I slept under. People who listened to the same preaching. Read the same books. Studied the same Bible verses that I studied. Who are out there right, th- right now in the world. Not only living under the law. But people who are living in homosexuality. Atheism. First of all, don't think that your association with the church group means that you're right with God. Don't think that that makes you a good, qualified Christian just because you go to a good church. There's really no difference there spiritually between that kind of individual and all these people who have just done away with the church because of petty church hurt. It doesn't hold any water. I'm sorry. That's a dumb reason to leave the body of Christ. That's a terrible reason to leave The church, whether you like it or not, is the holiest institution in the world. It's holier than government. God values the church more than he does the governments of this world, which the Bible says even he has established. Why would you leave the church? Because somebody hurt your feelings. Blaming the church for your emotional problems is no different than blaming a gun for violence, blaming money for greed. Like all of these things, it's not the guns that are the problems. It's not the money that's the problems. And I guarantee you, it's not the greater body of Christ that's your problem. I think a good self-examination is in order for people who honestly think like this. As well as anybody who thinks that... As well as anybody who thinks that they can just go under law. That they can just go under in anything that they want to do. Just because this other option... By grace through faith was not sufficient enough. By grace through faith is literally the message of the Bible, and it's simple. You don't have to dig deep to get by grace through faith. You don't have to dig to get the gospel. Three chapters into Genesis, God is talking to the serpent about this seed of the woman who will bruise his head. I mean, that's simple. I don't need to go for an hour teaching about that to you. You know what he's talking about. God has made his, as they say, prescribed order of victory. And that's a good phrase to use because it is God's prescribed order of victory. Yes. Obviously, Jesus Christ and him alone, his person alone, his finished work alone, none of it it involves you. None of it involves your strength, your intellect, your capability. And I dare say that you insult the law that God himself instituted. You insult God, who wrote the law, who established the law, who made the law himself, by thinking that Christ and what he's done for you just isn't enough. That's an insult. And God is not going to honor that in the slightest. Here is some fruit of the believer who walks in Christ and him crucified. Regardless of what they think about the church, they go to church because the New Testament, not Old Testament, New Testament, more relevant testament for you and I today says not to forsake the assembling of the brethren. We know that this is somebody who prays for their brothers and sisters of the faith. We know that this is somebody who does not trust in the law for victory. We know that this is somebody who hasn't totally sidelined the law in exchange to just do whatever they want in the Christian life. The law is still telling John Washington what needs to leave John Washington. But there is no victory for me in the law either. 
Now, ideally, this should be so simple, and it's a shame how unbelievably reactionary people can be in the modern church. It is either victory in the law, or it is totally on the other end of the spectrum, not living under the law to the point to where you believe that God doesn't really account you for the sins that you commit, and because God's grace is so great and wonderful and rich in mercy that you can just do whatever you want and still call yourself a Christian. This is why we need the Holy Spirit operating in our lives, because we cannot even trust in the way that we think. We don't work. And living under the law is a clear example of that. I mean, I would understand somebody in the Old Covenant trying to live for God under the law. And even then, the only right passage you had with God was the offering of the sacrifices. So your faith really would have to be in that, not the law, when it came to believing that you were in right relationship with God. But I would understand it better for them then. I'd understand it better for the Galatians because these people were alive to see the transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. I understand this confusion. I understand these convictions. But 2,000 years later, this church living under law, this generation of Christians, people living under the law, And on the total other end of things, people believing that because God's grace is so good, that that means they can do whatever they want, live however they please. Our minds are not enough. Our emotions are not enough. Our ways are not enough. You will not maintain your own spiritual walk with God. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And the only way that He's going to do that is if you keep your faith anchored in the one, the one, the one single thing that He wants you to have your faith anchored in. And that's Jesus. That's Jesus. It's simple. The world, the secular church makes it so complicated, but it's simple. Jesus died for you and me, and if we accept that, if we accept God's redemption plan, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, and on the basis of our faith in Him and what He's done for us, the Holy Spirit will make this gospel real to us day after day after day, because not only does God want me to know Him, God wants me to live for Him, to walk with Him, and the Holy Spirit can make that possible. And the only way the Holy Spirit will do that is if my faith is anchored in Jesus Christ. There are many people who have left the faith. The Word of God speaks of a great falling away. and Some believe that that's referring to one specific time frame. Some believe that that's referring to the general number of people throughout history who have left the faith. And, you know, whichever that is referring to, I've seen a lot of people leave the faith over the last four years at the, at the one place I never expect to see people leave the faith at. But it happens. There have been people who have come through this church who are not living for God right now. And it's sad. It's sad. We don't want to admit it. I guarantee you Paul would much rather not write the book of Galatians because of the reason that he's writing it. But he does because these things do happen. Good news Whenever they do happen, we don't have to die knowing that our labor for the lost, knowing that our labor for backslidden people is in vain. Whenever somebody backslides, that's not just the red flag to stop associating with them. We can at least make an attempt to reteach the gospel to them. We can make an attempt to continue praying for them and believing God for something that we cannot do, change their hearts and turn their eyes back. To Jesus Christ, their first love. Amen.
Amen. Amen. Well, I don't know how to officially end this message. Uh, Sister Sue, and if you don't, if you don't know it, that's okay. Do you know that old song, Turn Your Eyes on Jesus? Look for us, wonder, do you know Rock of Ages? Yeah, it's in, it's in the little book. If she doesn't mind, I'm going to ask Sister Sue to come up here and sing that song, Rock of Ages, because on that foundation, that great and mighty Rock of Ages, we can live for God in the midst of this world. And the good news is that, that we don't even have to turn our backs on God. We can walk with God day after day after day because of the strength and the power that's afforded to us, His people. And as she's finding that... Can you come up here to play the piano? Let for me. Let. 